Uh, so, fresh little recap. We've been going through 1 Samuel. We're almost done with 1 Samuel. Uh, next week we'll finish 1 Samuel, and then the next week we'll get into 2 Samuel. Uh, so, if you recall, it gets a little interesting looking at 1 Samuel uh, chapters 28 uh, to 30 and kind of how the chronology really fits in. Uh, if you remember, the author uh, takes us from 1 Samuel chapter 27 and we see that David is in the land of the Philistines for a year and four months. And then uh, he ends in 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 2 with this huge battle battle that's going to take place between Israel and the Philistines. And David is on the side of the Philistines getting ready to fight the Israelites. And then we take a break from that story, right? When we want to know what's going to happen with this, is David going to slaughter his own people? And then the author goes back to what's going on with King Saul. This is the night before the battle. And we see that King Saul, he seeks out a, a medium, uh, someone that could uh, speak to the dead, basically, or demonic spirits. And uh, he seeks out this medium, and uh, basically, he's able to get in contact with uh, Samuel the prophet. And Samuel the prophet tells him, hey, look, this is what, what's going to happen. You've been cut off from God because of the lifestyle that you chose, uh, and because you've, you've rejected God. And because you've rejected a relationship with God, he's, he's rejected you, and tomorrow in this battle against the Philistines, uh, not only are you going to die, but your sons are going to die as well. So Samuel, he speaks uh, prophetically to to, to, uh, Saul. Then we see in 1 Samuel chapter 29, we get back to the story of David, right? David, he's getting ready to fight uh, his own people, kill his own people. How can David kill his own people and then later become king? How could God possibly justify that? What's God going to do to get David out of this situation that he got himself in? And so we see that God actually uses the Philistines to redirect David. Basically, David got in with uh, one of the leaders named Akesh, and Akesh, he trusted David. He looked at David as a valued servant because David was lying to him, telling him that he was doing raids on people that he wasn't doing raids on. Anyways, we see that the other Philistines, they look at the uh, David and his 600 men, and they're like, wait a minute, we're getting ready to fight the Hebrews. Why do we have these 600 Hebrews with us when we're fighting the Hebrews? These guys got to get out of here. So Akesh listens. He tells David, hey, man, you got to go. David reluctantly, he listens to Achish and the rest of the Philistines and he leaves the battle to go back to Ziklag, the land that was given to him from the Philistines, which ends up being uh, Israeli territory. Now, as David is on his way back home, really, to Ziklag, he's going to run into an issue. See, while he was gone... The Amalekites raided his village and they took all the family members of all the men that lived there. And just when it seems like everything is lost, we're going to see Yahweh, we're going to see God not only give David back his family and all the men his fam- their families, but God is also going to give back David even more than he bargained for. So this is why the title of this teaching is, When the enemy takes and the Lord gives. When the enemy takes and the Lord gives. 
the Amalekites are a picture of the enemy. They're an enemy of God's people. We are going to see the Amalekites, uh, Amalekites rob God's people, but then we're going to see God give His own people back not only what was robbed, but more than what was taken. We see this truth throughout Scripture. Job puts it a different way. In Job chapter 1, in Job chapter 1, and we're actually going to tie the story of Job into, um, into this uh, entire text. Really, there are a lot of parallels and a lot of connections. And in theological Bible readings, we were in Job a couple weeks ago, so some of this stuff will be fresh in your mind. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job just lost his whole family, his possessions, a bunch of different things. The enemy basically goes to God and uh, essentially accuses God and says, Hey, uh, your servants only worship you because you bless them. Okay, If you didn't bless your servants, they would not worship you. And God says, uh, I don't believe that to be true. I believe people worship me because of who I am, because I am God and I am good. So there's basically this argument that goes on between uh, God and Satan. And God says, well, let's put your theory to the test. You can attack my servant Job, and I bet you he's still going to be faithful to me. So Job, he loses just about everything And this is how he responds in Job chapter one, verse 21. He says, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Well, when you read the uh, the 20 verses leading up to that verse, we see that it was really the enemy that took away and God allowed the enemy to take those things away from Job. But what we'll see later on in the story of Job, just like what we'll see later on in the story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 30, is that God is going to bless Job with more than he started with. See, sometimes we fall into seasons of great loss and the enemy's just wrecking us and he's taking things from us and it might be a loss of a job or a family member or relationship or money could be the loss of anything and we go through these seasons of loss and they're often followed by seasons of gain or seasons of plenty but how do we respond in these different seasons how do we respond when we face great loss and how do we respond when we face great gain we'll see exactly how david responds in these two types of scenarios, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you would, let's get to the text, verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there, From small to great, they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So, Aphek, where they were with the Philistines, getting ready to fight the Israelites, to Ziklag is about 60 miles away, okay? That's a long journey that these guys have been traveling. It took a few days for them to get there. 
This is important when we see something that's going to come up later in the text. So we see when they get there, there's fire. All the family members are gone. They realize the Amalekites had raided their village and took all their family members. So we see that this all happened while David was getting ready to fight the Philistines just before he was on his way to go back home. See, David set him up, set himself up for this situation. Had David stayed home and not getting him, gotten himself in this situation to go fight his own people, then this attack likely wouldn't have happened. He would have been able to defend his family with that army of 600 that he had. But he was at, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he left himself prone to the attack of the enemy. And this holds true for all of us. When we're at the, in the wrong place at the wrong time, we leave ourselves open to attacks from the enemy. When we're not where we're supposed to be or where God called us to be, we're inviting attacks from the enemy. See, David left his village vulnerable because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Now, God, he used the Philistines in the last chapter to redirect David to get him back to his village. Now, we know God did this for multiple purposes. The main purpose God gave this redirection through the Philistines was so that David wouldn't make a decision that he could never come back from. If he ended up killing his own, uh, become king of Israel, he likely couldn't have. God probably wouldn't have put him in that position had he killed his own people. See, God had multiple purposes in this redirection. God was preventing David from making a catastrophic mistake, but he also knew that David had to get back to Ziklag so that he could get his family back. See, the point is, When God gives us direction, it's almost always for something more than we realize, okay? It's almost always for multiple purposes. And when we don't follow that one direction, we have no idea what we miss out on down that road. See, the Lord, He's doing so many different things at once. And often He uses one direction to put us in a position to receive something else. Maybe it's a different direction so that we would continue can continue to be in a position of blessing from the Lord. Maybe if I gave you an example, it would help. So when God called me to Patmos, when I first went to that discipleship school, I was thinking, man, I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to get challenged in my faith. And that's the purpose. You know, I want to grow in my relationship with the Lord. And that was a primary purpose. It is always about growing in my relationship with the Lord. Little did I know that that act of obedience would introduce me to my wife. And I met my wife at Patmos. And that act of obedience, little did I know, God was using that ministry to raise me up to become a pastor. And used me in that ministry to get out to California. So if I never made that choice to go to Palmos, I likely wouldn't be here today doing what I'm doing with the wife that I have and the child that I have. 
So when you see God give a direction, it's so important for us to respond, listen, and be obedient to it because He has a path. He has a plan. He doesn't just give us a direction for one thing. There are so many other things that follow that one thing. And if we don't do the one thing, we're not going to get to the other things. So God says, do this today because you have no idea what I have for you tomorrow. But when you continue to, to take the wrong direction and go down the wrong path, you're not just missing this one thing. You're missing all these other things that I have for you down that this path. This is why obedience is so crucial. See, David probably didn't even know that God was speaking to him through the Philistines, but we absolutely see God use the Philistines in chapter 29 to get David to the place that he needed to get David to. And David responded in obedience. And now he's in a position to recognize that his family's gone, but he's also in a, in a position to get them back. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 3. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Remember when David in 1 Samuel 27, uh, when he raided the Amalekite villages, he didn't leave anybody. He killed everyone. So the Amalekites are actually showing more mercy than David. We see how bad of a spot David was in in 1 Samuel chapter 27 to 29. But that's not the primary purpose and point of this specific text. See, the Amalekites took everything from the Israelites that lived in this village. This is the point, first point. The enemy will try to rob us of everything. The enemy will try to rob us of everything. That's who he is. That's what he does. In John chapter 10, verse 10, if you want to write this down, it says, the thief, speaking of the enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's a thief. He likes to steal. He likes to rob. Ultimately, he steals and robs from us in an effort to bring destruction into our lives. I mentioned to you previously that we'd be bouncing back and forth to the book of Job. This is exactly what the enemy does with Job, all in an effort to persuade Job not to worship the Lord anymore. In Job chapter 1, if you would with me, verse 13, it says, Now there was a day when his sons, speaking of Job's, Job's sons, and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. See, the enemy, he destroyed the children of Job as well as the servants. See, sometimes the enemy, he tries to destroy the relationships in our lives, specifically the relationships with our children. Look what else he does in verse 16. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now he's focusing on the possessions. The enemy tries to destroy our possessions. He tries to destroy the things that we value materially. He steals those things from us because he knows it can discourage us. But he doesn't just focus on the material. Look what else he does to Job. In Job chapter 2 verse 7, 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the soil of his foot to the crown of his head. He also tries to destroy us physically. He literally will inspire disease and different infirmities in our life, all in an effort to bring destruction so that we'll be discouraged, so that we'll no longer worship the Lord. And look at this, verse uh, 9 of chapter 2, Job chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. He tries to destroy us uh, maritally as well. He just tries to destroy our marriages. You see everything that was the, the enemy was trying to do there. The enemy tried to, he destroyed Job's children. He destroyed Job's servants, his possessions. He inflicted physical infirmities on him. He had all these boils and then he got into his marriage. See, the enemy will try to steal, he'll try to destroy the things that we value most in this world. And again, it's all in an effort to get us not to worship the Lord anymore. But how do we respond when we see the destruction, when we see the loss, when we see the despair that the enemy inflicts in our lives? How do we respond to the Lord? How do we respond in those certain devastating circumstances? Often we say, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? That's not how Job responded, at least in the beginning. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He still blessed God. He still praised God. He still worshiped God, despite the fact that he lost everything. See, my circumstances don't dictate who God is. My circumstances don't dictate who God is. I have to see my circumstances in light of who God is. My circumstances are always going to change. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. But God promises that he never changes. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. He never changes. He's always good. And this is something that Job understood. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept. Until they had no more power to weep. Imagine losing all of your family. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. All the men, they're completely broken, and rightly so. They just lost their wives, they lost their children, they lost their houses, they lost everything. But as if it wasn't enough that David loses his two wives. Now all his friends, his companions, his 600 buddies want to stone him. They want to stone him. So not only does David lose everything, he's losing the favor that he's gained with these men that were supposed to be faithful followers of David. Guys that lifted his arms up, that supported him. And now they want to kill him. See, in this moment, David basically lost everything. And then what does he do? It says David strengthened himself in the Lord. 
he strengthened himself in the Lord. From this point forward, we're going to see a turnaround with David. From chapter 27 to the end of chapter 29, David is in a backslidden state. But when we look at verse 6, this is where David repents. This is where he turns it around. And it starts with David strengthening himself in the Lord. Well, what does this mean for David to strengthen himself in the Lord? Well, I believe it means several things. And we'll look at the different ways that David strengthened himself in the Lord in this text. But, Let me remind you of when recently David strengthened himself in the Lord and how this came about. It's just a few chapters uh, in the past behind us. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, it says in verse 16, Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan had a part in David strengthening himself in the Lord. And this is how. Look what he says in verse 17. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows this. How was David strengthened in the Lord? He was reminded of God's promise to him. He was reminded of God's promises. And he was encouraged. It gave him strength. Wait a minute. No, this is who I am in the Lord. This is what God says about me. He's going to make me the king of Israel. See, sometimes strengthening strengthening ourselves in the Lord uh, looks like being reminded of God's promises to us. Being reminded of who God says we are. The enemy can put all these lies in our head and discourage us and make us think that we're something less than we are and I'm pitiful and I'm pathetic and I'm never going to and amount to anything, but that's not who we are in God. That's not who our Heavenly Father says that we are. Sometimes we need a reminder. Who does God say that I am? Because that's who I actually am. Not even who I think I am. Not even who other people say I am. Certainly not who the enemy says I am. I am who God says that I am because He knows the truth of who I am. And He calls me His son. He calls me His beloved. He calls me his warrior. He calls me his soldier. He calls me his daughter. He calls me fill in the blank. This is who God says that I am. Remember, David lost who he was. In the land of the Philistines, he forgot who he was. He thought he was a Philistine. I'm just doing the Philistine thing. See, David needed to be reminded of who he was. And I personally believe Somehow he was reminded about this. Somehow he was reminded of God's promise. Maybe it was through prayer because we're going to see that he prays. But this is certainly a way that we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, being reminded of God's promises. But this is also interesting. We see everything that had to happen for David to finally strengthen himself in the Lord. It wasn't when he was hanging in the land of the Philistines. It wasn't even when he was redirected by the Philistines. It wasn't until he lost everything that he strengthened himself in the Lord. Point number two. When we face loss, we find strength. When we face loss, we find strength. Seems backwards. Doesn't seem to make sense. But it's true in this text, and it's true in the context of our relationship with the Lord. Again, it wasn't until David lost just about everything that he chose to seek the Lord and find his strength in the Lord. 
See, sometimes we don't realize that the Lord is our strength until we lose just about everything. Sometimes we don't realize the Lord is our strength until we're brought to that place of brokenness and weakness. Paul had to be reminded of this. If you recall, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. There was this thorn in Paul's flesh, this infirmity. See, Paul could heal other people, but he couldn't heal himself of this specific thing. And this specific thing uh, was really rooted in Satan and some uh, likely was a physical affliction or physical infirmity that Paul struggled with. Some say that it had to do with his eyes. Uh, we don't know for sure. Regardless, God, uh, Paul asked God three times, hey, take this thing from me. And God said, no, 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 I'm not going to take it from you i'm using this thing in other words to keep you humble and the lord said to him my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness my strength isn't made perfect in your strength my strength is made perfect in your weakness because it's in your weakness that you can find your strength in me when you go through catastrophe where do you find your strength you try to be strong in and of yourself. That's like our natural tendency. I need to be strong right now. It's not biblically true. No, you got to let yourself be weak. You got to let the Lord be your strength. Do you try to find your strength in, in your friends, in your family members? It's not bad to go to friends and family members when we face catastrophe. But we see the biblical answer for when we find ourselves in devastating circumstances is to embrace our weakness so that we can find our strength in the Lord. See, when we face loss, when we face catastrophe, when we go through trials and tribulations, it can often uh, affect our perspective of God. And maybe we might think, no, I can't find my strength in God. I can't even trust God right now. Look at what He's allowing to happen in my life. God, I don't even know if you're there. And if you are there, are you mad at me or something? Are you angry with me? Do you hate me? This is exactly what happened to Job later on. At first, Job started strong. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Later on, Job wasn't accusing God of sinning against him. Job knew that God couldn't sin, but he does accuse God of being his enemy. Why? Why does God hate me right now? That's what Job asks in Acts chapter 16, or sorry, uh, Job chapter 16, verse 9. He asks God, do you hate me? What's the deal? What's going on? Are you my enemy? Are you against me for some reason? I, I know I didn't sin, so I don't know what the problem is, why you're coming against me. It's easy for us to fall into this thought pattern. It's easy for us to have this perspective. All these things are happening. I must either be doing something wrong or, or God's against me. He hates me. He doesn't have my best interest at heart. But those things simply aren't true. And David, we see he had the right perspective. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't accuse God of anything. He didn't think God was out to get him or that God was his enemy. He knew that God and God alone could be his strength during this time. He refers to the Lord in Psalm chapter 28, if you want to write this down. In Psalm 28, verse 7, he says, The Lord is my rock and my strength. The Lord is my rock and my strength. 
whether I'm going through seasons of abundance or loss, the Lord is my rock and my strength. He's the root of my confidence. Only in Him can I, can I gain the strength that I need to endure the, the trial. And that's exactly what David does here. He strengthens himself in the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 7 says, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So David, it says, he inquired of the Lord. He sought the Lord for direction. We don't see any evidence of David seeking the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 27 to the end of 1 Samuel chapter 29. In fact, there's not one psalm that's documented that David wrote during that time period. The last time he was in the land of the Philistines, he wrote psalms. This time he didn't write psalms. And we see 1 Samuel 27 tells us that he's there for about a year and four months. So for all we know, based on the text, it's been a year and four months since David, the man after God's own heart, has sought God. That's a tragedy. That's devastating. That's a long time to go with not seeking the Lord. But ultimately, David would seek God. But he wouldn't do it until he was brought to this place of brokenness. This makes you wonder... If this was all part of God's plan, if God allowed the Amalekites to come in and raid the village in Ziklag just so he could get David to talk to him. And sometimes when we look at that truth in our lives, sometimes God lets the most horrendous things happen into our life and he lets the enemy wreak havoc in our life because he knows that's the only way that we'll seek him. When everything's good, when everything's dandy, when everything's comfortable, oh, what's my prayer like life? Lifelike. But all of a sudden, when I'm faced with loss and catastrophe, now I realize I need God. This is when David comes to the point that he actually seeks God. And he seeks God through his buddy, the priest, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech. Remember, King Saul slaughtered Ahimelech and all the other priests. Abiathar was the only one to escape. So David, he uses the priest... And uses the ephod as a means to, to seek God. This is another way that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Through prayer, if you will. Through seeking God. This is a way that we find our strength in the Lord. Through our prayer lives. But David used this other person to seek the Lord. Because that priest was uh, basically uh, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? He wasn't technically a mediator. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. But he was kind of like a, a gateway to God, to, to seek God. He had a special connection with God. But we see in the New Testament... We don't have to seek God through a priest. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says that we have the high priest of high priests in the person of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, He is the one and only mediator between God and man. 
And it also says in that text, in Hebrews chapter 4, because of that, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We have access to God. Whereas only the high priest back in the Old Testament could go into the Holy of Holies, that place, whether it was in the tabernacle, in the temple, that only the high priest could go, the place where the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolizing the presence of God, where that was kept, only the high priest could come back there, meaning only the high priest had direct access to God. Now because of what Jesus did on the cross, the veil being torn, because we have access to Jesus, we have direct access access to the presence of God and through this access this is where we find our strength in the presence of God and and we can enter into the presence of God through prayer through worship through uh, getting in the word there's many ways we can enter into the presence of God but the important thing is the Bible says come boldly before the throne of grace come like you belong there Come like, hey, uh, remember, Jesus died so that you could have access to God. So so use that accessibility. Uh, take, take advantage of it. Don't let it go to waste. When we take advantage of that, pursue the presence of God, we find our strength. This is where David found his. So we ask God specifically, shall I pursue the Amalekites? He didn't ask God specifically if he should go and dwell in the land of the Philistines. I wonder what would have happened, how this story would have played out. If he asked God, hey, should I go and dwell in the land of the Philistines? He didn't. There's no indication in Scripture that he asked God about this. Maybe David wouldn't have been in this backslidden place for a year and four months had he asked God. Maybe he didn't ask God for direction because he didn't want to hear what God had to say. And he was afraid of King Saul coming out to kill him. And he just wanted to be in the land of of the Philistines. Why is it that sometimes we ask God for direction and other times we don't? I think sometimes we ask God for direction when we really don't know what to do and we really want God's direction. And other times we don't ask for God's direction because we already set it in our heart that this is what I'm going to do. Okay, I've already set this is where I'm going to go. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to ask God what he thinks because I don't want to hear from the Lord. This is what I desire to do in this moment. There's sometimes that we'll seek God for direction and other times that we won't. But we always should had David sought God earlier for that previous direction in first Samuel chapter 27. He might not be in the mess that he's found himself. Now, I also want to consider something else. Think about this. Now, put yourself in David's shoes. Pretend you have two wives. No, I'm kidding. Pretend your family's taken, okay, by a a raiding party, right? Your family's missing. They're lost. And you know who took them. And uh, you can find out. We'll see. David finds out where they were. Wouldn't your first reaction to be, I'm going to go get them, right? Wouldn't you be like, dude, you took for me you took elizabeth and jude i'm going to go get who took my family i'm going to find them see david didn't do that he didn't just go hey i'm gonna go find the amalekites i'm gonna go find these people and find my family he sought the lord he asked god hey god am i even supposed to have them back is this some type of punishment where you just taken my family away from me? Like, what is the deal here? Do you want me to pursue the Amalekites? Do you want me to get my family back? Sometimes when we lose things, we immediately want those things back. I lost this thing. I want it back. That's our natural instinct. 
But how often do we say, I lost this thing. Maybe I should ask God if I'm supposed to have it back. (laughs) Maybe I lost this thing because I'm not supposed to have it. Maybe God doesn't want me to have this thing. And he was behind me losing it to begin with. Now, that'd be really hard to justify with our family. Like, wait, God, you really want me to lose my family? But we can relate this to really anything. Maybe I lost that specific relationship, that friendship for a reason. And, And maybe... Maybe God doesn't want me to have it back, or maybe it does. But guess what? We're not going to know unless we ask, unless we seek the Lord. Say, God, did, did you not want me to have this? Is that why you took it away? Or, or do you want me to have it and I'm supposed to pursue it? If we don't ask God for that direction, we can't expect to know what the direction is. But God, because he's faithful, he gives David direction. He says, yes, I want you to pursue the Amalekites. And not only that, you're going to overtake them and you're going to recover everything. You're going to recover everything that you lost. Not only is God faithful to give David direction, but he gives him even more than he asked for. Not only should you pursue him, but you're going to get him. You're going to overtake him. You're going to overcome this situation. See, sometimes because God is so gracious, when we seek one direction, God gives us even more than what we asked. And sometimes he even gives us the outcome of what that direction is ultimately going to bring. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 9. So David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind so we see david he was obedient to god's direction he went obviously he wants to get his family back but he's doing this because the lord told him to do it so he does exactly what god tells him to do we also see the 600 men are with him the guys were ready to stone him a few verses ago but now they're they got his back now this could be for a couple reasons obviously these guys want their families back as well but i think even more than that they knew that david heard from the lord they knew that god directed him and when they were confident in their leader's direction it was very easy for them to follow see When leaders are hearing from the Lord and being inspired by the Lord and following the Lord's direction, it's very easy to follow leaders that do that. That's why it's important that we become leaders that do that. We're seeking direction. Yes, for our benefit, because we want to know what the Lord wants for us. But sometimes God gives us direction, not just for us, but for many, whether it's our family or or our friends or a certain group that we're in. And many can benefit if we're obedient to that direction. But if we're hearing from the Lord and following the direction, it's much easier for people to follow. This is exactly what these men are doing. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 10. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the cross the book Besor. So David, we see, he didn't just send his 600 men out and say, hey guys, this is the deal, this is the direction God gave me, go do it, right? At least early on in his ministry, we see him kind of stay back later on in 2 Samuel. But early on in his ministry, he, he led by example. 
he was he was a man not just after God's own heart, but but a man who wanted to show people what it meant to be uh, a man after God's own heart and once it, what it means to follow the Lord. It says he led them into battle. He didn't just send them out to battle. This was a, an awesome character quality of David. So we see that 200 stayed behind when they got to the brook Besor. Okay, so from Ziklag to Besor, it's about uh, 12 to 15 miles. But remember, they already traveled 60 miles from Aphek to Ziklag. Okay, so add this up. This is somewhere between 72 and 75 miles. Okay, has anyone ever traveled 72 to 75 miles within a few days on foot? Right? That's brutal. That is brutal. So these guys, 200 of them are like, dude, we're weary. We can't go anymore. We're just going to stay here. We'll watch the supplies. We can understand this when we look at the fact that these guys aren't just being lazy. It's 75 miles. Okay. There was one time in a 24 hour period, I traveled 38 miles on foot. Okay. I ran 30 miles and walked eight. And let me tell you, I couldn't run for about three months after that. My knees were so messed up. I was in so much pain. It was brutal. Okay, and that was 38 miles. I couldn't imagine traveling 75 miles on foot. I understand these guys and why they're weary. Of course they're going to be weary. I'm shocked that the other 400 still had the strength to continue on. But sometimes we grow weary. Of the journey. I'm not speaking about walking. At least not physically. I'm talking about spiritually. Sometimes the the journey of faith. It it just takes a toll on us. And, and, And sometimes we just get tired. Sometimes we just get weary. Sometimes we need to slow down a bit. Sometimes we just need to. I won't say take a break. Because there are no breaks when we look at our Christian walk, we're always called to be on. But there is a reality that sometimes we can confuse busyness with spirituality, and sometimes those two mesh, but sometimes they don't. Just because we're busy doesn't mean that that's spiritual. Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is nothing and wait on the Lord. And sometimes, in our desire to be busy... We can put more on our plate than we can actually handle and we wonder why we're weary, why we're tired, why we feel this burden, why we feel this weight. Sometimes we got to take something off the plate. Sometimes when we get into those seasons of weariness, the Lord's trying to get across you. You're bearing a weight. I didn't call you to bear. You're doing too much. And I've fallen into this personally because I like being busy. I like to stay busy. And there's sometimes the Lord says, hey, pump the brakes. I need you to slow down. Okay, you need to take some of this stuff away. You need to either ask someone else to take care of this or you just need to stop doing it. It's important for us to discern that, to understand that. Because it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. When we look at our Christian walk, and it's a long, long journey. we got to make sure the pace that we're keeping is the pace that the Lord is setting for us. Sometimes there's seasons where we got to go, 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 go. And sometimes there's seasons that we need to slow down. We, don't, we won't know which season it is unless we're in tune with the Lord, seeking the Lord, understanding what kind of pace He has for us in that specific season. So these guys, justifiably, they grow weary. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs 
and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. When David asked, said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. My master left me behind because uh, three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherithites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. So, before David gets anything out of this guy, he takes care of him, okay? The last time we saw David interacting with these other people groups, he was killing them. He was raiding them. But now, ever since he turned back to the Lord, we see a different David. He, he's hospitable to this guy. He takes care of this Egyptian that's sick and hungry and thirsty. And as he takes care of him, he realizes, wait, this guy's an asset. He's useful. Remember, this servant was an Egyptian of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites basically said, this guy's sick, he's useless to us. He's worthless. I got what I could out of him, I can't use him anymore. And this is so often what the world does with us. The world will say, uh, he's worthless, he's weak, she's useless, I can't do anything with her anymore. And then here comes, not David, but the son of David. And he says, no, 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 I see value in this individual. You might not see value in them, but I see value in them. I see worth. I see that they're very useful. I could do a lot with this person. I can't do anything with it. I'm the world, I'm done with you. And the world abandons us. But the Lord says, no, 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 I saw you when you were vulnerable, when you were naked, when the world spit you out, when the world wanted nothing to do with you. And I give you a purpose, I give you a hope, I give you value, I gave you love, I gave you comfort. We see this picture of the son of David through the person of David. This man that the world wanted nothing to do with anymore. David finds value in him. First Samuel chapter 30, verse 16. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away and David rescued his two wives. So David, just as the Lord said, he rescued everything that was taken away. The Lord said, hey, you're going to overtake them. You're going to have victory and you're going to get everything that was taken from you. But not only that, look at verse 19. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. Not only did he get everything that God promised, you're going to get your families back, you're going to get everything that was taken, the Lord gave him more. He got all the other possessions that the Amalekites had raided. He ended up gaining more than he lost. Third point, God gives us more than we lose. God gives us more than we lose. When the thief comes to steal and to destroy, 
when he comes to take from us, inflict loss on us, whether it be a marriage or a career, an opportunity, whatever the case may be, we shouldn't get discouraged because at the end of the day, and maybe it's not this day, maybe it's a day in the future, the Lord is faithful to bless us with more than we lost. This is actually a promise. We see this with Job in Job chapter 42. In Job chapter 42, if you want to write it down, verse 10, uh, it says, and Job ended up with double the amount that he started with. Now, we can't look at this and say, oh, okay, now Job has double the amount of children, so he's okay that he lost his children. Like, no one's ever going to be okay with losing a child. It's not like two chi- children make up for the one that you lost. Okay, that's not what the text is trying to say. But the Lord gave him more than he ended up losing. See, God... When we face loss, He's faithful to bless us more than we originally lost. And maybe, maybe, we don't experience this in this life. Maybe you've had a life of just loss. Maybe it's defined by loss. You've lost jobs, you've lost family members, you've lost uh, uh, marriages, you've lost, you name it, you have lost everything, you feel like Job, and you've never seen the other side of this thing, you haven't seen that, well, I haven't experienced God blessing me with double than I lost, how can this even be true, maybe it was true for David, maybe it was true for Job, but it certainly isn't true for me, let me point you to something, in Matthew chapter 19, if it wasn't true for you, or it hasn't been true for you, It certainly will be true for you. Jesus gives the disciples a promise. See, Peter, he basically tells the Lord, uh, hey, uh, what are we going to gain? Uh, Because we forsook everything. We've lost everything to follow you. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. See, everything that we lose in this world, the Lord promises, I'm going to give you a hundredfold of everything that you've lost. I'm going to give you a hundredfold of that in the next life. We're going to experience loss in this life. And then there's going to be seasons where we experience great gain. But the Lord promises us whatever we've lost, don't worry about what you've lost. You're going to have so much gain. You're going to have more than you know what to do with in the next life if you're truly His. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 19. Sorry, uh, verse 21. Now David came to the, t- to the 200 men who had been so weary and they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Basor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil. 
that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. So these guys, these wicked and worthless men, David had a lot of faithful men, but apparently they weren't all faithful. Okay, They weren't all mighty men. Some of them were wicked, the Bible says, worthless. They're entitled to these things. They're, wait, God gave us all this stuff, but it's ours now. It, it, it's ours. And we're not going to give to these other 200 guys that we've been doing life with for years now. We're not going to bless them. We'll give them back their family members, but we're not giving them anything else back the greed the selfishness the entitlement look at how david addresses this in verse 23 but david said my brethren you shall not do so with what the lord has given us who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us see david he recognizes that the only reason they have anything is because of the Lord. The Lord is the one that delivered us. The Lord's the one that preserved us. The Lord is the one that gave us our families back. The Lord is the one that blessed us abundantly. Who are we to claim this abundance for ourselves? He goes on, verse 24, For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is, who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who are in Bethel, those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who are in Arior, those who are in Sifmoth, those who are in Eshtemoa, those who are in Rachel, those who are in the cities of the Jeremeliites, those who are in the cities of the Kenites, those who are in Horma, those who are in Tarashan, those who are in Athak, those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to roam. This was a wise, wise move for David. He's blessing all the people that are in the tribe of Judah. He would first become uh, the king of the tribe of Judah before he became the king of the tribe of Israel. But he wasn't just doing this to, to gain favor with the people. He was doing this because he knew this was the right thing to do. God gave him an abundance and he knew God wanted him to give with the abundance that was given to him. This is the fourth and final point. The more God gives, the more we should give. The more God gives, the more we should give. See, God gave David so much more, David knew what he was supposed to do with all the extra that he gained. He was supposed to give more. See, the Lord gives and he takes away, but when he gives, he desires us to give. Why? Because we're called to be imitators of God as dear children. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And God is a God that gives. It's the gospel. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves and he gives. Giving is a product of love. Because he's giving, we also too should be giving. And when the Lord gives us abundantly, we too should give abundantly. See, the Lord often doesn't bless us with more so that we have more. He blesses us with more so that we can give more. It doesn't mean that we can't receive an abundance here and there and, and just kind of like uh, appreciate the abundance that God has given us. But He often gives us more, not just so that we have more, but so that we will give more. Why? 
Because the Bible says, in Acts chapter 20, verse 5, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's actually more blessed. That actually means that word means that there's more joy in giving than there is receiving. There is. There's more joy in giving than there is receiving. So the Lord gives us more because He wants us to experience more joy by giving more. David understood this idea, this concept. When you look at this practically, oftentimes, God's blessings are His testing, meaning... God is blessing us with more to see what we'll do with it. Hey, I'm going to give you more. What are you going to do with the abundance? Are you going to get greedy with it like the worthless and wicked guys? No, no, no. It's all ours. We're not giving it to anyone else. Or is that abundance going to lead you to give more? He's just seeing sometimes if we'll give more back. I'm going to give you more to see what you're going to do with it. It's a test. Okay. Yeah, I want you to have. I want you to have an abundance. But what are you going to do with the abundance? Are you going to be faithful with the abundance? Bible tells us, Luke chapter 16, if you want to write this down, finish the end strong. Quick, I mean, verse 10. He says, he who is faithful with little will also be faithful with much. Think about this in the context of things the Lord gives us. If the Lord knows that if we're faithful with a little bit that he gives us, and he promises, if you're faithful with a little bit, I'll give you more. The opposite is also true. If we're not faithful with the little that he gives us, why would he give us more? (laughs) If he can't trust us with the very little that he gives us, why would he give us more? If we're faithless with the little, we're going to be faithless with the more. It holds true. I know there's many people that struggle with very little, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but many people struggle with very little because they haven't been faithful with little. And the Lord says, you be faithful with this little stuff that I'm giving you, and I'm going to bless you with so much more. This applies to so many different things in our life. It obviously applies to giving materially as well, just as it does in the text. It applies to tithing. I know that there is a direct correlation between many people's financial issues that are believers, okay? Talking about believers specifically. There are issues, there's a correlation with people that don't give back to the Lord in the financial turmoil that they're in. Think about it. If God says he's faithful with the little things, I'll give him more, I'll bless him with more. But if he can't be faithful with little things, why am I going to bless him with more? He hasn't proven himself to be a good steward of these things. He's certainly not going to be a good steward of more. We look at this. It's not about the Lord being concerned with monetary things. The Lord isn't concerned with monetary things. He's not concerned with material things. He's concerned with the things of the heart. And He wants to produce a heart in His children that are giving. That says, no, no, no. When the Lord blesses me, it doesn't just mean I take, 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 take. No, just like David, when the Lord blesses me abundantly, I get the opportunity to give abundantly because I know that's what the Lord wants me to do. And I don't just do it because the Lord wants me to do it. Yes, that's the primary reason. But I also do it because I know that it brings joy. And the Lord's giving me an opportunity to experience more joy. So He blesses me, whether it's small, whether it's big gives me a chance what are you going to do with this you're going to be faithful with it you're going to take it for yourselves you're going to be like david you're going to be like the wicked worthless servants that he speaks of see there are times in this life where we have little and we have much we have little and much material things we have little and much money 
We have little and many family members. We have uh, little and, and, and many friends. We have little and many opportunities. No matter what, in this life, we can count on this for certain. That there will always be variations in seasons. That there are always going to be inconsistencies. And in the midst of all these inconsistencies and these seasons that we face in life, whether it be a season of much or a season of little, there's one thing we can always count on to be consistent, and that's the Lord. See, Paul learned this, and he had to learn this. He says in Philippians chapter 4, and this is where we'll close. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul, as he's in prison, as he once again has nothing, (laughs) he tells the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, he's speaking about giving. He says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I can do all things in through Christ who strengthens me, he's talking about contentment. He says, when I have seasons where I have a bunch and seasons where I have nothing, I'm still content. I still have joy. Why? Because my contentment is rooted in the Lord. Again, we can rest assured that there will be seasons of abundance and seasons where we feel like we lost absolutely everything. But regardless of what season I'm in, I can choose to have my contentment in the Lord which is consistent, always stays the same, or I can try to find my contentment in my circumstances that are always changing. So are my circumstances going to dictate my perspective, or is my relationship with the Lord going to dictate my perspective? We see with David, as the Lord blessed him abundantly, he chose to give abundantly. Now David's on the right track. He's back walking with the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. He's finding his contentment in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for so many truths in your scripture, God, that we can apply to our lives, that we can be challenged with. And um, I just pray, God, that uh, that as we go through so many different types of seasons, seasons where it seems like the the enemy's wreaking havoc on our lives and, and just as he is the thief robbing us of so many different things. Lord, and then we face these seasons where things seem so good and you're blessing us so much and everything just seems great. God, I pray um, that we wouldn't be distracted by the different seasons, that our contentment wouldn't be contingent on on our circumstances, uh, but it would be rooted in you. Uh, and, and Lord, as we see with David, as you do bless us, God, you would produce those uh, generous hearts uh, in us. Lord, whether whether you you bless us um, materially or spiritually or emotionally, uh, sometimes God, you just give us an abundance of joy, and you want us to give that to other people. Uh, you give us a word, uh, and you want us to give that to other people. And, and we know, God, you want to produce those generous at hearts in your children. So we pray that you would, uh, Lord, that we would mimic David in this, that we would give, that we would mimic you in this, that. Uh, that 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 we would be would be giving, God. So uh, I pray, Lord, whatever season uh, we're in, 
God, ultimately our contentment, our satisfaction, and our joy would be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.